Welcome to Citizens Midweek, a podcast for our church family where we take a deeper look at this week's sermon. I'm your host, Jacob Kirby, and this week on the podcast, I'm joined by our pastor, Tim Olson. Here we go. Um, This Sunday, we continued on in our series through Ephesians. This week, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And kind of the main crux of the passage for us was just a reminder that Christ is our peace. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And the challenge for us is not to make unity happen, but it's to learn how to live in light of the unity Christ has already accomplished for us. And we kind of talked about two enemies to our unity as a church. And those two enemies that we kind of see in the world around us are individualism and counterfeit reconciliation. So I think uh, for me, the part that stood out the most was definitely the, um, just the, the kind of idea that you brought up Tim about, um, we're not trying to create unity for ourselves. We're not trying to necessarily fight for unity like the world wants us to, because there's certainly a lot of talks about reconciliation and unity happening all around us. Um, but we as Christians don't have to fight for unity in that same way because we've been given unity in Christ. So, um, you know, us learning how to live in light of the unity that's already been accomplished for us. I thought that was a really, a really powerful way of saying that. Yeah, that's good. We're going to talk more about this um, in Ephesians 4. Yeah. One of the things Paul says later is that we should, as Christians, be eager to maintain the yeah. unity of the Spirit. And it's the same idea, right? That we don't yeah. make unity happen. Christ has united right. us. He has given mm-hmm. us peace. And our goal is to, our challenge is to learn how to live in right. light of that. Yeah. And I think even just thinking about this in the context of kind of the conversations I've heard around in a secular way about unity and reconciliation, it's, it kind of goes in the face of the biblical idea, which the biblical idea is to maintain the unity that we have in Jesus, where I think a lot of the conversations that maybe non-Christians have about unity are really fixated on hyper-focusing in on our differences, really making sure that we've divided the groups into who's who, almost and then a way to kind of unify us afterwards in a way that just seems a little messy and then we find out in ephesians oh that's because that's not how christ has designed it for us christ Mm -hmm. has unified us the common ground is our identity in him and then we work out how to be unified because of what he's done for us but yeah which is true of all of the christian life right right? all the christian life starts with god right and it's us learning how to live in light of what he has already declared true about us this is just in a corporate sense yeah that's awesome that's really helpful and what about you tim anything that kind of hit you in particular as you were studying to get ready for the sermon yeah so always there's stuff that gets left out this one was very sad to leave out which i kind of hit on it like real briefly but i really wanted to talk a lot but it would have taken way too long uh verses 19 and 20. So Paul says, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So specifically verse 20 there, where he says, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So our foundation, what Paul's referencing there is the scriptures, right? The, The prophets, these Old Testament prophets that wrote all about the Old Testament story of God. Then the apostles, these early church writings. So he says, our foundation is scripture, but then even more important than that, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And we talked about this briefly on Sunday, but the cornerstone is the first uh, stone that you lay in the building of your structure or your house. It's that first stone that dictates what all of the other stones are built off of. And so he says, the foundation for us in our shared life 
as the family of God is the cornerstone, which is Christ and the foundation, which is God's word. Yeah. So I just love that, that all of this, all of what we're trying to do, even as a church is built around those two things, right? It's built on, we are a Jesus centered family on mission, right? So our cornerstone is Christ. And then how we know Christ and how we experience Christ is through the living word of God, how God has revealed himself to us. And so that's why everything we do as a church, preaching, teaching groups, discipleship, uh, just living life together, all of it needs to be built on Christ and the word of God. Yeah, that's right. That's really helpful. I think, you know, as you're, you know, when I like to kind of start my time praying and reading the Bible or even just talking about the Bible and community with thanking God that he did not see it fit to make himself ambiguous, <laughs> but he wanted to reveal himself really yeah, clearly. Absolutely. So we have this legacy of the prophets and the apostles and the person of Jesus so clearly given in scripture. God is in the business of revealing himself and we have a really clear picture of what God's like for those that seek it. Yeah, absolutely. What are we going to dive in deep today, Tim? Yeah, so I thought we would land more on um, talking about God's heart for racial reconciliation and for the nations and all of scripture. So we hit on this with point two, the second enemy to our unity being counterfeit reconciliation or yeah. counterfeit or uh, performative or false, whatever you want to call it. This idea of building the kingdom without the king, of wanting unity in diversity, of wanting a church or a world that looks like unity between all different people, groups, and nations without the king and the Christ who makes it possible. Mm. And one of the things we talked about was that we have no gospel without racial reconciliation, and we have no racial reconciliation without the gospel. And one of the reasons why we can say that is because of God's heart for the nations that we see throughout scripture. And I thought, you know, just in a few minutes on this conversational commute podcast, <laughs> that uh, we would just deep dive into God's heart throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation of building a people for himself. Yeah, just casual commute conversation. Yeah. Take yeah. notes. Read these, tr- these verses later. It'll be great. Don't take notes while you're commuting. That's true. This is a commute podcast for you. Do not take notes. (laughs) That would be bad. Uh, So let's start with Genesis 1, right? God's very first command to Adam and Eve. He creates the world. He creates all things. He creates man and woman. His very first command before he tells them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a command to, quote, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's Genesis 1, 28. Often this is referred to as the cultural mandate. And just by nature of the fact that he tells them, hey, fill the earth, spread out, means that as they go across the earth to different climates, to different topographies, to different landscapes, that different cultures would start to develop, right? They would eat different foods. They would wear different clothing. They would have different natural resources and environments they would have to adapt to. And so even in the beginning, most theologians argue, hey, this is a part of God's natural design that there would be different groups of people living their lives in different ways. Fast forward, Genesis 9, God sends a flood because of the wickedness of mankind. He spares Noah and his family, his sons and his wives, or his sons and their wives. And he gives them the same commandment, right? Chapter 9, verse 1 of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is God's design that he keeps pushing people towards. Fast forward a few uh, more chapters, Genesis 17. God is establishing his covenant with Abraham, who at the time was named Abram. And he introduces this practice of circumcision. He tells Abraham, hey, you're my people. You are going to be a set apart people for myself. All of your males will be circumcised as a physical sign of this spiritual reality that you are now the people of God. But he says, through you, I'm not only going to bless one particular people, but you, several times in Genesis 17, he says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Yeah. 
It's the Hebrew word goi, which means peoples. You're going to be the father of many different people groups, many different ethnicities, many different nations. So you have that kind of throughout, right? There's different parts throughout the Old Testament as you read the story where God's people are a blessing to other nations as they settle among them, as they teach them how to worship the one true God, all of that. Fast forward, Jesus comes, God's only son comes to earth, born in a manger, everything we celebrate in Advent, all that good stuff. Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus is preaching and teaching his disciples. And he says this, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That phrasing all nations is one you're going to see really in the rest of the verses we look at throughout the New Testament, where it's the word ethne, which means races or ethnic groups or people groups. And so he says, hey, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached and proclaimed to the all people groups, to all types of people, to all nations, then the end will will come. Fast forward four chapters, Matthew 28, Jesus dies. He goes to the cross. He goes to the tomb. He rises again. He's about to leave his disciples and he gives them what's often called the great commission. And that's what he says in Matthew 28. He says, go therefore. And once again, make disciples of all nations, mm. all ethna, all races, all ethnicities, all people groups. So you have this thread. Genesis starts, goes to Matthew 28, keeps getting picked up. Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost, right? Disciples, Jesus has just left them. He said, go be my witnesses in all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples are praying. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. The spirit descends, tongues of fire rest upon their heads, whatever that means. And they start <laughs> speaking and a bunch of people all start hear them speaking in their own language, right? So they're starting to preach the gospel and everyone around them from all these different nations are not hearing them in one language. They're hearing them in their own languages. So this scene is considered by many theologians and scholars to be a reversing of what happens in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Mm. So in the Tower of Babel, many people are building a tower trying to be like God. They're trying to build this tower to heaven. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be like God. And God comes down and he confuses their languages and he scatters them on the earth because that was his original design. Fill yeah. the earth. Don't stay in one spot. Fill the earth. But notice here, God is reversing that but he doesn't make them all speak one language. Yeah. He doesn't make all of the, the new disciples, all of the 11 speak one language. They have them speak different languages, mm -hmm. still affirming God's design that many people from their different groups, whether they be Parthians or Medes or Judeans, Egyptians, Romans, Arabians, all these different groups that are there, all hearing the good news of the gospel, not in one language, but in their own yeah. language. Instead of the confusion of language in Babel, it's now a unified, we can understand one another. There's no more confusion when we communicate with one another. Yeah. While, while affirming their own background, yeah. their own cultures, their yeah. own written languages. Yeah. Fast forward a little bit more. Acts 15. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Sunday. Uh, Jerusalem Council, right? They're fighting. Hey, what do we do with the Gentiles? What do we do with these non-Jewish believers that are suddenly putting their faith in Jesus? And basically they decide, hey, we should welcome in the Gentiles. We should welcome in all of these other non-Jewish nations because God has given them the Holy Spirit, just like he's given to us. Then you get to Ephesians 2, what we talked about on Sunday. Christ through his flesh has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He's made the two one. He's united all of us in Christ. No longer two groups, now one group through his blood. And then you get to Revelation 7, right? 9 and 10, which says this. So John, he has this vision of the throne room of God. And he says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. 
all peoples, tribes, tongues. That's what God's design was from Genesis one, all the way to what he fulfills in the end. And listen, this is God's story, right? God is sovereign overall. God is going to accomplish his purposes through his means. He's going to lead us to his directed end. And so if his directed end, which is a guarantee is revelation seven, right? That people from all tribes, tongues, nations will be worshiping him together. will be before the throne, giving glory to the lamb. If that's God's design, that's going to happen. And that's God's heart, right? This isn't like, Oh, I guess God has to settle. Like this is what God is leading us towards. This is the mission that he has for the church. This is the mission that he has for his people. This is his directive. This is his goal. This is his aim. And so we, as the church are then called to say, okay, if this is where God is leading his people, Mm. this is what God wants. How do we actually make this happen? How do we actually learn to live into what Christ has purchased and died for and done. Yeah, that's really awesome. I think kind of listening to the sermon on Sunday, even um, when we were talking about some of the enemies to our to our unity in Christ, we like I said earlier, we talked specifically about individualism and the counterfeit reconciliation. And I just kind of found myself thinking or maybe asking, like, I wonder what are some of the most prominent ways that you see those two things working out in the communities that we exist and live in? Like, where do you see those enemies show up? in Charlotte, in the context of our community, in the spaces that our community occupies. Yeah, I think so. We, just to stick with the thread, we can jump to individualism yeah. in a second. Um, this idea of counterfeit reconciliation, particularly when it comes to racial unity and yeah. racial harmony. Man, I think there's so much good that comes from... So some specifics, right? There's so much good that comes from social media. So much benefit, blessing to the kingdom. A lot of it's not. right. And I think one of the things that you know, you and I have had conversations about this. We've yeah. had conversations as, as a leadership team, as a church. One of the things that most frustrates me is that idea of, you know, we almost named it this, but yeah. the idea of performative reconciliation, yeah. this idea of um, what I do online, thinking that is my lived reality, yeah. which is true in so many ways. But we we think online world, the online world is not a space we inhabit. Right. And so we think what we do there is part of our lives. Yeah. And it's just not right. Like it's words we say, which matter and are important. It's, it's, you know, public persona, which matters and important, all of that, but it's not reality most of the time. And so what I have seen uh, in my own heart is a temptation to post the right things, right. to say the right things, to repost and retweet the right things and to use that as, as a balm for right. my conscience, hmm. which feels bad about things and is upset about things yeah. and, and a deflector to actually doing the deep heart work within my soul yeah. where I feel like, Hey, if I post about this or if I say something about this or if I repost something about this, that is what I need to do instead of getting before the Lord and other believers mm-hmm. and actually repenting of my yeah. own brokenness and sin, yeah. my own inability to love my neighbor, right. my own lack of desire to um, put myself in situations where I uh, am the minority, my own right. lack of wanting to confront my own deep rooted problems and sin and frustrations. Yeah. And so I think we can just become so easy to be like, well, I said the right thing. I posted the right thing. Right. I'm, I'm part of it. You know what I mean? And then if I don't, well, then I'm just uh, complicit and compliant right. because I was silent. And I think that's a false narrative. Narrative. And yeah. I think it's, I think it's okay to go, Hey, I have a very limited social sphere. You got me on a high horse now, Kirby. Great. I think it's okay to say I have a very limited social sphere. The people that follow me on Instagram, 99% of them are just my friends. Right. And I would rather just go have some dialogue and have some conversations and have some back and forth. that's just not afforded to us on social media. So that, right. that's a big one. Um, I think you know, another big one is not taking ownership over our own personal lives and our own personal ways. We talked about this a lot a few weeks ago of wanting diversity for our culture, Mm. wanting diversity for our church and not being willing to live diverse lives ourselves. 
not being willing to put ourselves in diverse spaces, mm. not being willing to put our own awkwardness on the line, our own um, pride on the line, whatever it may be. And so I think even some of that of just feeling like I have to own everybody else's racial yeah. reconciliation without owning my own racial right. reconciliation, right. not doing the hard work myself, caring uh, a lot about if my church is this way, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Please care about that. But am I willing to say, am I doing this? Right. Am I living this way? Am I about those things and about um, putting myself in those environments? I think the last one is, man, this is... And we talked about this on Sunday too. But just this whole idea of kingdom without the king right. is so true for so much of our culture. There's so many things we want. And you see this especially um, with just all of the calls for... Um, people wanting to belong, yeah. right? Like so much of what's going on underneath all these issues is people want to say, do I have a space in the world yeah. to be okay, to belong, all of that. And that's one of the, the greatest joys of the gospel yeah. is that Jesus says, you do, mm -hmm. right? Not because of you, but because of Christ right. on the cross on your behalf, um, which means you have to die to yourself, but to find um, truer life, truer joy, life abundant, life eternal. And I think one of the biggest most frustrating things with this argument is that we have just boiled it down to only systems and structures and only earthly temporal means. Right. And we fight like the world. And now there are systems and structures that are implicitly racist. Right. Yes, absolutely. You have these examples in redlining with housing. You yeah. have these examples with uh, historical injustices. You have these examples with how communities are even set up and how people right. flee to the suburbs. Like just all of this like implicit, deep rooted history. But man, I'm just so convinced <laughs> looking at the, even Ephesians 2, right? Yeah. Christ builds unity between a church that has thousands of years of division, right. of hatred, of right. animosity. Just that example of Jewish fathers who would disown and treat their daughters like they didn't exist yeah. if they married a Gentile man. And just saying, okay, the blood of Christ unifies that. Yeah. How much deeper can the blood of Christ unify us as the people of God yeah. and as the church? And so I think if we only do this I think one, you know, one of the ways to, to do it where it's just, man, we're fighting like the world fights is to say, well, we, you know, we just got to sing different worship songs or we yep. just have to, you know, do this, we have to do that, whatever, and not go first and foremost, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves and break down our own barriers that we have internally to fight against our own like junk within us, our own sin within us. And then we can go, okay, what has Christ called us to? How has he sacrificed for us? And then what do we do in light of that gospel fuel to then do the long, hard work right. of seeking reconciliation between one right. another? Yeah, that's super helpful. I think particularly what you were saying at the end about fighting like the world versus fighting like Christians. I think some of the ways that I just find myself a little confused or even frustrated about the way that Christians I know respond online in particular. One of the things about online presences is that for the most part, for the average person, now there are certainly influencers that do have wide breadths of influence, but that's not most of the people in anybody's given community, right? Yeah. So most people, myself included, I mean, I'm like, I have a very small influence online with mostly like-minded people. So I think that's kind of what gets me a little frustrated about some of the performative or counterfeit reconciliation stuff is like, I kind of just ask myself like, well, who is going to see this that disagrees with you? Mm. Which doesn't mean it's not worth saying, like declare the truth in love often. Like, so sometimes I think we should respond to things that we see, but I think a lot of times it's like, are we responding? Cause we feel like we have to, to people that already agreed with us. Well, mm. then what have we actually done to contribute to work that reconciles in a gospel way? Yeah. 
Well, chances are, too, if they disagree with you, they're only going to disagree once because then they're going to block right, you. Right. So it's you. not that we shouldn't respond. Yeah. It's that is responding the only thing we're doing because it's probably not contributing as much to actual reconciling work when your online presence is mostly homogenous. Yeah. It just is. Well, no one's served by hot takes. Right. right. This is not a... Oh, but we live in such a hot take culture, I know, Tim. but it's not a simple issue, right? This is a complex, r- deep-rooted, historical thing yeah. that's not going away with yeah. 140 characters. Like, yeah. It's just not. And I think I think one of the things, too, as you were, were talking about it that I think was helpful, um, that pastor that I was talking about on Sunday, he said he has encouraged his people basically to say, hey, I don't know your motive. I don't yeah. know what's going on right. in your heart. I think sometimes we're posting it out of good motive, right? right. Uh, he said, if you you got if you stop and ask yourself is my motive anything else but Christ right. and his glory and him getting the honor him getting the renown if it's motivated by anything else but the gospel and the glory of Christ you should probably question your motives right even if your motives are good he said if it's anything else but the gospel or Christ getting the glory you should probably question and think about your motives and i think that even kind of brings me to the second thing i was thinking about fighting like christians not fighting like the world is that just i i always want to check myself and make sure like am i do I believe that the best solution for, for reconciliation, for unity is what Christ has offered us in the church and in himself? Because in a lot of ways, there's this tendency or this urgency to agree with the most seemingly the most expedient social political solution. And I think there might be some, I'm not saying there's no way that social and political means can't make lives better in any way. But I'm just saying as Christians, do we have a strong conviction that the church is the best place for us to have a reconciling, united relationship with people that aren't necessarily like us? And if it's because our churches aren't, well, then that's something to address. Like, is our church a place where everybody, that there's there's a place and a welcoming and a hospitality and a familyfication for anybody that enters into the door that wants to follow Jesus? Absolutely. Um, and that should be our primary aim. And of course, there are other aims that stem from that. I'm not saying... We talked about this on Sunday. Don't mm-hmm. just be a preach the gospel and leave the rest to sort itself out. That's not what I'm saying, but it is. It is the first fruits, right? Yeah. Um, Which is even that example. I've I've heard several folks give me good feedback on on the example of uh, we don't treat other sin issues that right, way, right? right? We don't treat addictions that way. We say preach the gospel to them, remind each other of the gospel absolutely, and take these necessary tangible steps. <laughs> Talk about individualism. Yeah, Kirby, how do you see individualism play itself out in our culture? I see it a lot in ways of like, um, and when culture kind of butts against traditional Christianity, there's a lot of ways in which culture will win over. I guess like, just like the last like 20 years of social ethics changing so rapidly, I see individualism kind of in two ways of like a really growing list of things that culture has just says like, oh, the Bible is wrong or it doesn't matter anymore. But then also I see it a lot in like a uh, just the way that we engage or disengage with church family. So, I mean, at Citizen Church, we have a really high commitment level to one another as people follow Jesus together. It's not a flippant or passive thing that we're a part of this church specifically. Um, but I just think like I've been really disappointed, especially in adulthood in a, in a city that's pretty like a uh, transitionary or what's that word? But in a city that transitions people a lot, just like a really low value for depth of relationships in terms of uh, quality and quantity like we just trade away really long-standing fruitful relationships so quickly if there's low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. in some part of our life whether that be jobs or romantic relationships or i mean even easier 
places to be a part of church. I mean, I don't know how to say that. Like, not that we have too high standards, but we do have expectations, right? As people following Jesus together. And I've just been really disappointed by kind of the like, oh, we were here for a year or two. We were here for a year or two. We left for this reason and we're here for a year or two. And it's like, I don't know. That's 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 where I see it the most. It's like an unwillingness to commit yourself to a specific group of people that are following Jesus together. And that comes up a lot in a lot of different ways. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I think about my own temptations in my own life. Right. So I think the biggest one for me is that I really want to pull everything into the introvert category. Right. Right. So I there's I'm so quick to go, oh man, I just can't be there for them. I'm an introvert. I gotta right. get some me time. Yeah. Like I, I can't I don't know. Like I, I just I don't want to have that conversation right now. I'm just an introvert. I just need some me t- like mm. my own lack of desire to sacrifice relationally. Right. Like I think I can sacrifice in terms of service. I think I can sacrifice in terms of, you know, what I do for the church. I think I can sacrifice in terms of giving. I think I can sacrifice in terms of a lot of things. Yeah. Relationally, there's just always a rub and attention right. for me of like I just don't want to give more people more time sometimes. And that's me. And that's my own sin. And that's my own like desire just to check out and right. to want to watch TV. And, you know, I love Survivor so much right now. And just like that's a pull. Like it's just yeah. like a you know, I, I wanna watch Survivor because it's easier and it's not messy. Um you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, I think it was Bonhoeffer one time that talked about this idea of um, the greatest enemy to actual Christian community is our view of what we think Christian community should be. Uh, I think he talks about it. He said it much more eloquently because he's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Basically talks about like the biggest enemy you have to actually living in deep sacrificial relationships with other believers is the figment of your imagination that you have said Christian community should be. Because we hold the idea as a moral imperative, don't we? A a little bit of like we we think, oh, this is what it should look like. We have this picture perfect you know, we're sitting around a campfire talking about all of our like wonderful ways that we love Jesus together. And then we don't like it when we deal with people that have different personalities than us, yeah. different interests than us. I don't like it when people have different personalities right. or interests than me. There's a certain personality <laughs> that just rub me. And I don't right. like, I'd rather not be in a Christian community with you. I'd rather have it all set up how I want to be with my friends. Yeah. And I think that's the, for me, like the biggest job of individualism is to say, First and foremost, what's going to benefit me here yeah. instead of the rest of the group? And I will I will sacrifice until it actually costs me something that yeah. I no longer want to let it cost me. Right. And that's what that's where I think the rubber hits the road for us. Because that's how we're conditioned to think, right. right? Me first, my family first, what I want first, what I need first. I mean, just through the roof, the stats on, uh, like, like you were saying, how quickly people move city to city yeah. these days, how no one stays put. Every right. city is a, a transient city. Yeah. Um, just the, the statistics and stats on loneliness right. and... You know, I think I saw somewhere a stat a few years ago that said it was like 70% of men between the age of 30 and 50 don't have a best friend or don't have a close friend. And it's like, uh, in some ways, that's heartbreaking and really sad and is part of just because of how we were raised and conditioned and how our society says all that kind of stuff. Also, part of it is our own need to self-isolate and our own desire and our own temptation to go, I'm going to make life about me and not about other people. And so... I mean, I think it just kills from the inside out that Joseph Hellerman quote from Sunday, those who stay, those who commit grow right. like overwhelmingly what you see as the genuine stuff that helps Christians progress in their holiness is long-term interpersonal relationship. Right. And I think that that idea has been even more attacked by the millennial and Gen Z generation and in the year of COVID. Like, Oh, I just, can't even imagine the stats we're going to see yeah, in a few years from what happened how this, this year. has affected young people. Yeah. Or, I mean, p- any people at all, but I just think that culture 
really rewards kind of this really transient wanderlust adventurer lifestyle. I mean, I, I even just see it on social media, like how much, how quickly somebody can gain a following by kind of highlighting the best parts of their migrant lifestyle. Like I'm all over the place. I'm here one week, I'm there another. And I think it is, it does sound really, I mean, I've been watching a ton of videos about renovated school bus RVs mm. and it sounds really exciting and it's really fun to watch. But then I kind of think about it of like, is there space for a Christian to live this lifestyle yeah. where they're so disconnected from anybody that knows them deeply, yeah. you know? And I know for me, like thinking about the individualism, like you were talking about the ideal church, but I even like see to myself thinking about the ideal Jacob mm-hmm. and like only wanting to present the ideal Jacob Yeah. Um, to the extent, like I walked through years of my life only presenting the ideal Jacob and nobody knew me. Mm-hmm. Like there was so much hidden sin and hidden ambition and hidden idolatry because I was so concerned with presenting the ideal. Well, I was, even if I was surrounded by Christians, I was still disconnected, you know? And I just think those are so like, they're really big enemies that we have to be a certain way or our life needs to look a certain way so that we throw off the fruit of long-term community, long-term discipleship with one another to achieve that lifestyle that we think we're supposed to have, I guess. Yeah. Eugene Peterson, who is a, a pastor that I quote way too often, talks about how the stuff of relationships are made in the boring and the awkward. Right. And he said, until you're willing to get bored and awkward with people, right. then you're probably not going to have anything of substance. Because yeah. that takes time. Right. Yeah. We're much too much achieving, getting stuff done, crushing right. it, hustle, culture that we don't have time anymore to just sit and be bored and awkward with yeah. people. One of my professors told us that community is a crock pot. <laughs> It's yeah. not it's not fast. Yeah. Um it's a slow cooker, but yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, anything else you want our church to know? Uh, yeah, man, just keep pressing in as we head towards summer. And I know the beautiful weather is calling, the beaches are calling, the parks are calling. Yeah. Like I know that the tendency was summer for myself to get lazy. Yeah. I, I was having this conversation the other day. I, I told someone, uh, I think the least during the summer. Yeah, <laughs> just, right. I've just been conditioned <laughs> to be lazy over the summer, and I know that the temptation and the pull. Uh, so I just encourage you to, to pull in. We got some awesome stuff that we're going to be rolling out in yeah. the next couple of weeks with summer studies yeah. and uh, just some ways to engage and press in as a yeah. church this year uh, in the summer. And so I'll just encourage you, uh, get out in nature, enjoy what God has created, enjoy time with good friends and good family and community. Uh, but keep pressing in, keep showing up to your group, keep showing up on Sundays and let's keep, keep doing this thing. And I would even say too, like, you know, summer has a lot of unique experiences, unique things that kind of happen. So do it together as much as you can. Yeah. (laughs) Like bring people into what you're, what you're in or bring people into what you're doing this summer and invite people, you know, that you don't know people would be missional with, like do it together. That's called immediate application. Wow. Look at that. We're capable of it. Cool. Well, thanks for hanging out, Tim. We'll see you next time.